Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Hoping everybody had a great holiday. Again, we have New Year's obviously coming up, but Christmas and Hanukkah has passed. So I'm hoping everybody had a good one, got everything they wanted. I've been on break from school. I teach, so I'm on my winter break, and I'm going to be completely honest and call myself out on this one. I haven't been doing a heck of a lot. Uh, The Tom's Big Spiders stuff is almost like a second job now. I get home from work, and I have to answer emails and and queries and, and comments, in which I actually enjoy doing, don't get me wrong, but it does get exhausted. So I actually unplugged a bit for the last few days during the holiday season and left that stuff kind of behind for a bit as I just relaxed. So now I have a bunch of comments I have to answer, a bunch of emails I have to answer, Facebook posts, good times. So I apologize if you've sent me an email and I haven't gotten right back to it, but I did take a few days for myself. I figured I earned it, but I'll be back today. I've already spent about two hours answering comments and emails and such, and I'll be getting into some more later on after I finish this podcast. But one of the things that came out of this, and I like love doing these every once in a while for the podcast, is kind of the question and answer where people will ask questions either via email or the comment section of YouTube. And what I like to do is kind of put them together in a little feature for the podcast because I think some of these deserve a bigger audience or questions that could benefit or the answers of these questions could benefit a lot of people or it's stuff that I've gone over several times and it's nice to kind of cover it in this format. So that's what we're going to do today. I also put a call out on Facebook and just know that if I didn't get to your question or don't get to your question today, I will absolutely get to it in a later episode. So to kick this one off, I got a question that's been asked quite a bit lately. I'm not sure. Well, I kind of have an idea why I might be getting it so much. And I actually covered this on a longer podcast or kind of this topic in general in a longer podcast earlier on. But I have this one on my YouTube channel. Is it recommended to put a sling in an adult-sized tank? Thanks. Now, I also got two emails, one involving an OBT where somebody said they were getting an OBT sling and said their idea was to put it in a 10-gallon tank so that it wouldn't be quote-unquote, aggressive. And then another one was a piece of Letharia species that somebody was getting and was asking if it would be okay to start them in an Exoterra Nano Tall. Now, the comment that I just read was actually left on my piece of Letharia genus review. So again, this one has to do with an old world species. And here's what I think is going on here. I think a lot of people are starting to move into, or hobbyists are moving into the old world species. They're reading about how these guys can be defensive, they can be flighty. I'm sure they've probably heard that your best chance of actually getting a bite would be during a rehousing. So they're thinking in terms of if I don't ever have to rehouse this spider, then I don't ever have to worry about getting bit. And I absolutely appreciate the sentiment. I remember when I first got into Old Worlds, I had a similar thought process at one point where I was like, hey, wait a minute, if I can get them you know, buy something that's like two inches or so and drop it in its adult enclosure right off the bat. I won't ever have to rehouse. I won't have to worry about getting bit. I'll be safe. It makes all the sense in the world. Unfortunately, here's my take on it. Now, I've covered the whole thing about size, what size aquariums or homes you should use for tarantulas. I have nothing against giving them extra room. I've made that abundantly clear. I've seen some gorgeous setups where people have given their spiders tons of room to work. I do also find, however, personally, that some species do benefit from tighter quarters. Not saying you need to cram them in something that's just barely bigger than their leg span, but sometimes the extra size or extra amount of space you give them ends up being wasted. So, for example, I talked about my Pamphibedius antinus female that I gave a large enclosure. It's got a lot of floor space to it, and she basically stays in her hide and barely ever leaves that area. I come down at night, shine a flashlight in, she'll be sitting a few inches in front of her hide, never ventures over to her water dish or never ventured over to her water dish, which was across the 
container from her. So I ended up moving the, the water dish closer and actually caught her drinking one. So it, some species, they do fine. They'll, they'll make a burrow. They'll have a little spot with a roam. I've seen some beautiful setups with Theraphosa species. But other species seem to that, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit before, so I'm not going to get into it in great detail. But in many instances, those enclosures become their dens and your house becomes the outside world. So they like their little den area. They feel comfortable in there. They feel secure. Now, the idea of dropping a sling into an adult enclosure, I'm honestly never for this. And I'm sure somebody will jump on and, and dispute it with me. And I'm not saying it can't work. I've seen it happen a couple times where somebody has dropped a green bottle blue C. Cayenneo pubicin sling into basically a, an exoterra and let it go. Here, Here's my issues for this. And here would be my answer of what I give people when they ask, can I drop a sling in an adult enclosure? I would advise against it because of these two major reasons. One, you want your sling to grow quickly, out, grow out of the sling stage, and to do so, it needs to find food. So you want it to be in a situation where it can find food easily. Now, if I drop, say, a one-inch piece of Letheria sling in a five-gallon aquarium, it's probably going to web up in a corner somewhere and make that its home. It's not going to venture out across that aquarium or that container and try to explore, generally speaking. It's going to stick to where it feels secure, kind of like it would in a while. It'd find you know, a crook of a tree or a knot hole or something in a tree and hide there. And unfortunately, it's not going to use that extra space. Now, if I drop a prey item in, now granted, you're only supposed to drop in one or two, generally rule of thumb, one or two prey items at a time to make sure that the animal, you know, that you're feeding actually gets the prey item, eats it, and that the prey item doesn't disrupt it or possibly injure or kill it while it's molting. You want to be able to keep track of that prey item. So if I drop a small cricket into a five-gallon aquarium with, you know, the cork bark and the decorations and the water dish, it's going to be very difficult for that sling to find that cricket. I'm sorry. It's just maybe the cricket ventures into it quickly. More uh, likely than not, it wanders around that tank. I've had crickets stay alive in larger aquariums, even with adult spiders that haven't caught them right off the bat. So it makes it much more difficult for the sling to find its prey. And that is not a good thing. You want your slings, you know, personally, I feed my slings twice a week. You don't have to. They're very adaptable. If you feed them, obviously, bigger meals, you don't have to feed them quite as often. But it, I like to keep track. I like to grow them out of that sling stage. If I feed them twice a week, it means I'm checking on them at least twice a week. I'm usually in there more with a flashlight or whatnot. But it, it's kind of a, it gives me an opportunity to touch base and make sure that everything's okay and grow them up faster. Now, even if you're feeding once a month, you want to make sure that it's getting the prey item. It's going to be very difficult to see if it's getting a prey item if you drop it in the adult enclosure. Number two, you want to make sure that you can keep track of the sling yourself. And that's another issue. I've dropped, you know, three-quarter inch slings in 32-ounce dilly cups before and had a very difficult time figuring out where the sling was or if it was in there. They can get lost very easily. They blend in, especially like a piece of Letheria species. They're going to camouflage right in. So it's going to be very difficult for you to keep track of your own spider. And that's important, too. You want to make sure it's healthy, it's eating, it's growing, it's molting. You want to be able to tell when it's in pre-molt. And if you drop a spider in, a sling, into an adult enclosure, it's going to be ridiculously difficult to A, find where it is. I mean, it's it's going to be very easy for it to hide and B, to keep track of it. So those are the two major reasons I have and major cons against dropping a small sling into an adult enclosure. Another thing I've had happen recently, the last past couple months, I've had two different people talk to me about getting exoterra nanotalls for a boreal species and then dropping the slings in. Now, here's the deal. A, I think that's way too much room, especially if it goes up and basically creates its 
hide in an upper corner, you're going to be hard-pressed to have your prey item find its way up there. They will not necessarily come down to eat, and it's not going to find the food. But another problem with those things is there's a lot of gaps that a small sling could escape out of. So I had two people say, yeah, I bought an exoterra. I'm just going to drop it right in its adult enclosure, having no idea that those little vents in the front and around the doors, there's enough room for a sling to escape. And then what's going to happen is your sling's going to get out. It's going to die. I think a lot of people think, oh, the sling's going to go in the house. It's going to thrive. It's going to end up biting me or something. Usually what ends up happening is you either find the sling or a house spider gets a hold of the sling. They don't generally live very long in those situations so you're going to have a dead sling you're not even going to know it because you're not even going to know that the sling is out because you can't find the sling in the first place so something to keep track of my answer would be and again i try to keep everything from going black and white for me this is a fairly black and white issue only because i've had a lot of experience with slings i know how difficult it can be to keep track of them and make sure they're eating make sure they're molting not dropping in live prey items when they're in pre-molt or possibly in the act of molting keeping track of them in larger enclosures i've gone through it so i get why this is not a good thing but i advise people i kind of think it's a for me don't drop a sling in an adult enclosure. It makes no sense. Get a little enclosure, a smaller one, something that's you know more appropriate to the size of the spider. Even my slings, I keep in things generally a little smaller than I would adults only because, again, it allows them to easily find prey and allows me to easily keep track of them. Then once they hit the juvenile size, yeah, then go ahead and drop them in something larger. I've actually made it very clear in many of my Pisolotheria husbandry videos and I believe my articles online that once they hit about 3.5 inches or so, there's usually a molt they have where they hit like three and a half inches most of them hit that mark then you can go ahead and put them in adult enclosure they're larger they're more hardy at that point and they're going to do a bit more hunting and they should find prey items easily so an adult enclosure won't be a big thing but unfortunately the reason i think this is happening is people are getting into the old worlds and there's that fear factor and the thought process at this point is i'm kind of scared to get an old world i'm afraid i'm going to get bitten by it so i'm going to limit any possible chances of interaction I could have that could lead to a bite. And again, I do get this. I went through a point when I first started looking at old worlds and thinking, am I ready yet? And I started looking at like basically puncture proof gloves. I was looking at large enclosures. I feel like I was going to put slings. I, I totally get the, the line of thinking. So I'm not being judgmental when I say this. But if you're at the point where you want to get an old world, but you want to drop it in an adult enclosure so you don't have to mess with it at all, you probably want to hold off getting the old world. That means you still got that fear there. And we've talked about the fact that you want to respect old worlds, but you don't want to fear them. That's what causes mistakes. That's what causes bites. That's what causes escapes during rehousings. That's what causes people to slam down lids on top of legs. I just had a situation where somebody had bought an OBT. It was a juvenile, and they startled the OBT when they were dropping the food item in. The OBT basically went to charge out of the enclosure and they slammed it down, caught a couple of its legs and popped its legs off. Now, luckily the spider was fine afterwards, but it's that fear. It's that inability to react appropriately to the situations where things go wrong that can lead to bites, mistakes, dead spiders. That's, that's one that really bothers me is when, you know, there's situations where you, you get startled and it ends up harming the spider. You flick it and when it gets on you, you slam it down in a cover whatever it may be. And this was a small OBT. So imagine when this thing turns into a large adult, what the person's going to have to deal with if it continues to be a bit feisty and flighty. So I think what it comes down to is, and I've, I went back through and the majority of times I'm asked about whether or not it's okay to start a sling in adult enclosure. It's a species that the person sees as it's either an old world species or a species like a GBB or 
that they see as being one that could be possibly defensive or flighty or skittish, and they're trying to minimize the chances of this spider escaping or possibly biting them. And again, I get it, but that's not the way to go. If you're having that much fear, if you're to the point where you're like, I'm going to drop a one-inch sling in a five to ten-gallon aquarium to avoid having any interaction with it, at that point, what's the point of even having it? Wait until you get some more experience under your belt. Work your way up. Get a couple old worlds, smaller old worlds as slings, and start them in appropriate size enclosures and get used to rehousing them. It's, it, rehousing is part of the hobby. I think a lot of us, it does cause some stress, even for people that have been in the hobby for a while. I think the majority of us are, have to rehouse you know, adult old worlds. Yes, it's going to cause some stress. Yes, it's going to cause a bit of anxiety. However, it's also part of the fun of the hobby. That's where I get to see these guys out i mean i do the youtube videos this is where i take my chance to get them on film because i don't feel like prodding them out or trying to get them out of their burrows to get them on camera that's not my thing but if i'm doing rehousing it's kind of like two birds with one stone i rehouse my spider i also get some good footage of them i enjoy the rehousing it's 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 an integral part of the hobby so to try to avoid that i personally feel like you're not going the right direction with it now i'm sure people are going to chime in go i've started slings and adult enclosures can it work yes it can i'm not going to tell you that everyone's going to you know result in an escape or a death i just think it will make it more difficult than it needs to be people have enough anxiety around raising slings believe me i would say probably a good 75 percent of the questions i get are about slings and sling husbandry and worries about slings not doing what they're supposed to do not burrowing not eating whatever it may be there's already enough stress involved. Why make it extra stressful by dropping them in a huge enclosure where you'll never be able to figure out where your sling is in the first place or possibly have an escape or have a sling that you can't tell if it's eating because the prey item is swimming in this giant enclosure with it. So that's my thought on that. Again, I'm not going to say... It's completely wrong to do so, but I kind of feel like it's not the right approach. And if you are considering dropping a sling into an adult enclosure to avoid the rehousing because you're getting into old worlds, I don't think that's the right approach. Get some more experience. Get some more rehousings done. Get some of the Feister New World tarantulas. Those are those can be just as much fun to rehouse. As a matter of fact, I probably have more difficult time rehousing some of my New Worlds than I do my Old Worlds. Billy and I always comment the Old Worlds knock on wood tend to go generally fairly well. The New Worlds seem to be a little more unpredictable and plus you got the hair factor. But that's my thought on that. No, don't start them in an adult enclosure. Is it? Can I label it wrong? No, but is it wrong in my opinion? Yes, it's not the right way to start one off. Part of the, the hobby is putting them in different size enclosures and recognizing when they need to be rehoused. And we'll get into that one in a future one because that's actually one of the questions that was asked on Facebook, but I don't know if I'll get to cover it today. So we'll, 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 we'll circle back to that one later on. All right, the next question also appeared on one of my YouTube videos as a comment. And I was just very intrigued by it because it was something I wasn't quite sure of at first. So I did a little investigating, looked at some notes I had, looked back at an article I'd written to try to come up with an answer for it, which I think is the correct answer, but I'll feel free to open it up to people. But basically, it was on my Avicularia gerensis husbandry video I did a while back, and we'll get back to the fact that this probably wasn't a gerensis. Unfortunately, this was a, ended up being a male, matured, it's long since passed. But here's the question. Hey, Tom, great video as always. Thank you. 
Just a quick question. I have been looking to get a Jurensis for quite some time now and have stumbled across some slings, but they are labeled Morph Type 1 and Morph Type 2. I was just wondering if you know what the difference between the two are. Now, we were just talking earlier, I was talking earlier with somebody else about the different morphs of Avicularia. Avicularia, there are considered to be seven different morphs now from different areas, including Morph 6, which is a Metallica, which was considered to be a name that is in doubt after the last paper, which I believe was in uh, February, March of 2017, the last revision on Avicularia. It was determined that uh, a Metallica probably isn't a separate species, but is probably just a different color or morph of the avicularia avicularia. So basically same species, just different coloration. This happens a lot in the hobby where we have different regional variances of different species. So basically it would just mean that a metallica, the name is in doubt. They don't think it's a separate species for the time being. It's considered to be like a different morph of avicularia avicularia. And the fact that there are seven total with different colorations lead me to believe that this, you know, genus needs to be studied even further from this paper. But anyway, Here's the deal. I had not heard of the morphs, but what I did know of, which was something that came out with this paper, again, that came out last year, was the fact that uh, in the avicularia revision, there were uh, some changes and an identified error. So let's start with the changes. Number one, one of the changes was avicularia urticans was made a junior synonym of A. gerensis, which basically means that they're the same species. That was an important one because Urticans obviously was sold for years under its own name. Urticans goes away, it becomes Agerensis. The second change or error that was identified, and this happens a lot in the hobby, and I would love to get somebody to talk about this that's more in the know than I am about some of the things that are mislabeled in the hobby right now. But the gray banded species that was being sold as Agerensis for years is actually Avicularia rufa. So basically what we have there is one species that has been misidentified. So the species in the video that this individual was commenting on, the Agerensis that I thought I had, was actually an A. rufa, totally different species. And this, again, happens quite a bit in the hobby. We're not always up to speed on the scientific names or which species we're importing or what we've, we're labeling them as as we're selling them. So what I think is happening here is when I looked up the, different, the differences between the morphs, morph 1 was described as lighter with pale white rings around the legs. Morph 2 was described as darker with yellow rings. The Morph 2 was found in Brazil. I believe Morph 1 was found in the surrounding countries. I believe Peru being one of them. I don't have the notes with me right now. But they were basically considered to be two different color forms and are sometimes sold as that. However, if you go back and look at this revision paper and some of the notes in it, it sounds to me like the Morph 1 with the lighter pale white rings is probably the one that used to be considered urticans, which is now actually agerensis. And it sounds like that perhaps Morph 2 with the darker yellow rings would be the avicularia rufa. So it, it seems to line up perfectly. Now, if somebody has other information to point to the contrary, please feel free to chime in. This is something I'm still figuring out about because honestly, I'd never heard of the morphs. I did know of the, I'd written a, an article on Tom's Big Spiders about the avicularia revision and having a an agerensis at the time, I was particularly struck by the fact that that species was apparently misidentified, that the agerensis was in fact the avicularia rufa. rufa. So I'm 
wondering if that's where the morph came from because I know there was some confusion back in the day where people would get a Jurensis or get an Urticans and the two would be confused for each other and there was discussions over one being a lighter form of Jurensis. Rufa was never honestly mentioned in these. I do think the paper kind of lays out neatly what the difference is. So morph one, I'm thinking, would probably be the species that was Urticans before that is now actually the true agerensis with lighter bands and then morph two with darker yellow rings the one from brazil would be the one that was originally called agerensis that is actually avicularia rufa so that's my thought on that one i uh, again I, I find this stuff very interesting and i try to keep up with all the scientific name changes and the papers and everything and it was funny because after this paper came out i had a gerensis i obviously had a stake in this it was like fascinating to me but there weren't a lot of people that had gerensis out there they weren't being widely sold in the hobby so i don't think a lot of people really jumped on this one as quickly and went oh man this is kind of a major thing here but i have seen that some people have you know that were originally selling them as Jurensis have changed the name to Rufa. So obviously people took notice of this change and are now labeling them correctly. But I do believe that's where the morphs came from. Again, if somebody knows something I don't, obviously the Avicularia uh, genus, this paper was made huge strides in kind of answering some of the questions we've had about it, getting rid of some of the species. Because for a while there, there were like everything was avicularia. There was a, a bunch of different avicularia species. Some of them are considered not valid species anymore. It did. It was a fantastic paper. It made some revisions that were welcomed by the hobby. But there's still some work to be done. So again, that's my take on this one. And I'm throwing it out there because, you know, perhaps somebody's heard something I haven't. I, again, I try to, when somebody asks me a question, I don't immediately know the answer to I actually love it because that means I get to kind of go and do some research, kind of do figure out, you know, I was on uh, arachnoboards. I was looking over the old paper to make sure that, you know, I was right about the avicularia rufa part, all that stuff. It's, it's fun for me. It's kind of like I have something exciting to do a mystery. So hopefully I've got that one correct. I would be curious to hear back from people and I'd be curious to hear from people that have the gerensis and the possibly the rufa and i'd love to see pictures of them it'd be neat to kind of compare them to see what they look like i think the one thing that kind of comes out of these podcasts with the facebook aspect of this people can throw up pictures of their specimens we did this earlier with the what was it grandma stole a pulchra people threw up pictures so we got to kind of compare some pictures and what they look like again that's not the best way ever to identify tarantulas, but it does give people an idea of what to look for. So that would be that one. I do believe Morph Morph 1 would probably be the actual Jurensis. Morph, morph 2, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time pronouncing that, would be the Arufa now. But this is just my conjecture. Again, I was looking at the stuff with the morph seemed to be kind of old and predated this actual paper that came out. So I'm thinking the paper kind of fixed all this. Unfortunately, some people that sell them, the dealers don't keep up with the stuff the way they should. And then we have things getting mislabeled and sold under funny names. So hopefully I can get the name of the dealer and kind of clue them in or at least ask where they're getting the different ones from and figure out if this indeed is what they're calling morph one, morph two, these two different species. So now that we've covered those two questions, let's pop over to Facebook. You're going to hear a click because I've actually got Facebook pulled up. And let's see if we got any comments over here from folks. Oh, this is this is amazingly appropriate. Uh, we have from Dominic Savannah, is it a good idea to put a sling in an adult size enclosure? Well, Dominic, <laughs> that's your timing is absolutely uncanny. This is obviously the first part of the podcast, so I will mention this when I respond to you. Um, again, I don't know which species you were looking at, and I, my general 
my opinion on this, I can't, it does, I do see this as a black and white issue, but my opinion on it is it's not a good idea. Take care of the slings. Slings are where they're most likely to have problems where you want to make sure that you get them out of that delicate stage as quickly as possible, where you can make sure you can monitor them, make sure they're eating, make sure the prey items are getting eaten and not roaming around the enclosure. So I covered this earlier, but my quick one, you know, one minute answer would be no, it's usually not a good idea. I, I can't even think of a single situation where I'd start a sling. Doesn't matter which species, how crazy it is, or the reputation is, where I would start a sling in an adult enclosure. It just doesn't make sense to me. Again, people have probably done it. Not my cup of tea. Uh, Benjamin Rosenberger, how to keep temps and humidity up during winter in a drafty 100 year old apartments. Uh, <laughs> No joke. This is, I I get this one a lot. I get a lot of people from Ireland and Scotland. I don't know what's going on over there with you guys during the winter time, but apparently the homes get very, very cold. Sounds like I'd be right at home there because I actually love it cold, but that can be tricky. I will tell you one thing I used to do back in my old house because we had the old crummy windows that weren't, weren't the plastic vinyl ones or whatever that were, you know, winterized or meant to keep drafts out. It was a very drafty old house, but I've used that shrink wrap plastic that you tape up around the windows and you basically use a hairdryer to blow it down and it basically cuts down drafts amazingly we actually use it in my living room right now where they put in the windows i got a funny feeling somebody got a grant and they used the cheapest vinyl windows they could find when they replaced the old wooden ones and it's very very drafty in here and billy and i put this plastic up last year and it made an amazing difference as far as keeping the draft down because i will tell you my living room just to give you an example the heat is in the living room, the actual thermometer. And we would put the heat up to say 70. And on some of the really cold days when it was windy outside, we had a hard time getting it past 65 because of the drafts coming in. We put that stuff up, no problem anymore. So it's it's very easy to install. You basically put up some tape, you put the plastic over it, and you go back with a hairdryer and you basically shrink wrap the plastic over the windows. It keeps the drafts out. It'll actually help great deal keeping the heat in your home. I mean, this is a good tip for anybody. I, I didn't use it for years because it looked like it'd be a big pain in the butt, but last year we used it and it came off the windows quite easily. So again, with wooden windows, or if you have peeling an old apartment with a paints peeling, it might be a little more difficult, but it's going to save you some money as far as heat. And it's going to keep that room, at least the one that you're keeping your tarantulas in a little bit warmer. And then as far as the humidity, I don't worry about the humidity. I do the same thing I do with my enclosures because again I don't monitor really humidity in my house so much as I monitor whether or not it's really the air is really dry we put it that way so I do have a hygrometer in the room if when the heat's running here when it's really really cold if I'm not running a humidifier in the room the basically the humidity can drop down into the single digits it gets dry our skin's dry you can pretty much use your fingernail and you know carve your initials into your dry skin that bad so what I do is use a cool mist humidifier. I just picked up one of the Sunbeam ones at Walmart. It was like 25 bucks, and it works. It's got a wick filter type. I tried to stay away from the filter ones before because filter is just an added expense. You have to replace the filter every once in a while. I think they're like 6 to 10 bucks or whatever. But this thing's been working great. And what I try to do is just maintain some moisture in the air. I don't like it to dip below 40 because if it dips below 40, that's when basically the air around you starts sucking all the moisture out of the enclosures. You have to fill the water dishes much more. For the ones that are moisture-dependent species, you have to go in there and moisten that a lot more. So 
I found those work very well. So yet for a hundred year old apartment, I would honestly really look into the shrink wrap for the windows. It'll help all around to keep the heat up in the apartment. You can use a space heater, but again, if it's a hundred year old apartment, I would definitely look to see what the electrical service is because I know at my old house, it didn't have the right wiring and we'd plug in a space heater. It could blow the circuits, pop the circuits, which was a big pain in the butt. So that would be my advice and try to find, you know, depending how big your collection is sometimes moving them from one room to another helps if you have a warmer room i know it's not convenient always but that's the best way to go all right let's see what we got here next up and i think what's gonna happen i got a lot now holy moly there was like two of them this morning i checked before i started doing this i'm like oh, i'll start with just some of the questions but there was only two and one of my kind of covered now there's a bunch so uh let's see how to select the proper enclosure size you know what andy this is from andy anderson andy let me save that one for a future one because it's not an easy question to answer and i got a funny feeling it's gonna end up with me rambling for a bit so i want to write down some examples or whatnot but that's that's a fantastic one that might be one unto itself uh best way to keep humidity up during winter months from adam oh gosh no nohoek Adam Nohoek, Adam, I'm sorry if I butchered, just butchered your name. I feel terrible doing that. Again, a humidifier, cool mist. I would go with the cool mist humidifiers. You can usually get them for rather cheap, depending on the size of the room. They come in different sizes, and they do a great job to just, again, you're not trying to keep the humidity in your house like 80% or 80%. And again, you probably shouldn't even be monitoring the humidity per se. I don't worry about humidity with my spiders, but I do worry about dry air. Dry air is, is bad. Dry air is bad for my skin. Dry air is bad for my kid's skin. And dry air means that all of the moisture dependent species I have, their cages are drying up much, much faster than they normally would. So I would encourage, again, the humidifier. Let's see, what else do we have here? Is there really a 50-50 chance to get a female as a sling, or is there typically a gender majority in an egg sac? Honestly, this is a great question, and one we could kind of, I'd like to do some more research on this one, but I looked into it a long time ago, and it depends, honestly, it seems to depend on the species. It seems like some species, there will be many, many, many more females than males, believe it or not, and a lot of the thought process behind that is that in some areas, one male can actually go around and impregnate a lot of females, and in which case they don't need as many males in a sack. You need more females to get the, you know, more slings out there. In other cases, there may be situations where the females eat the males, so there may be more males. It honestly seems to depend. So I would say no, there is not 50-50 chance. It doesn't always go. We'd like to think it's that simple. I mean, even with humans, I believe it's slightly more males than females. And many folks will point to the fact that males tend to take more chances. And, and traditionally, when we're you know an older species, we're the ones that were getting killed more. So some feel that that's kind of a way to make sure that there's enough males for the females. But you know, without this is a tough one to kind of track because it would involve. I think the, a question would be. Which species seem to have more males than females? Uh, that could be something that we could look at. But the problem is, you figure with some of these species, they can have egg sacs that are in the hundreds, even thousands. And what you would have to do is somehow track each and every one of these. So say we had L. parahybana. I'll just start with something that's obviously an extreme. They can have 1,000 to 2,000 babies. You would have to track all of those until you could actually sex them to see what the percentage is. And that could be difficult. I think some of us have experience with buying certain species in the hobby and getting more males than females, and we immediately go, oh, well, this is a species where there seems to be more males than females, but you can't look at that. You have to look at a cross-section. You have to look at what everybody's got. So unfortunately, it's something I think 
people that have bred for years and kept a lot of them might have more of an input and might have more of an idea. But even then, that's just a small cross-section. It would be very difficult to kind of track which is which. I would say, without a doubt, it's not 50-50. From my own experiences, it seems like you're more likely to get males of some species, more likely to get females of others. Uh, for, for Myctopus, now I... I would love to hear from other people on this, but from the Formictopus species I've had, I think I've had around 24 of them total so far that I've raised up, and I've gotten exactly one male so far. So just something to think about. I don't know if that's just my collection, the luck of the draw. I had really good luck with those guys, but I only got one male. I've heard people say that where they're located, the males can go around and breed with a lot of females, and that would make sense. They wouldn't need as many males because one male can go spread his genes to a bunch of different females, where in other places where it's less hospitable, there could be more of an issue. So my guess on this one would be that my my heart tells me, no, it's not 50-50, and that I would honestly not be shocked to find out with certain species it's heavily skewed toward one sex or the other, maybe 60-40, you know, female to male or vice versa. I don't think it's a straight 50-50. I will say that the old, you know, myth, it's not even a myth, it's worked out really well for me. The, whole, the idea that if you're trying to get a female of the species and you're buying slings to buy three to increase your chances is pretty solid. I think in my years of doing it, I've only had one instance where I got three males total, and that was with, um, what species was that? Um, NNC Golds. I bought three NNC Gold larger slings, and all three of them turned out to be male my first time around. So again, I think that is, if you're trying to get females, that's a good way to kind of ensure that you, you know, you're increasing your chances. But as far as it being 50-50, and, and again, for people that have bred that have any in, inside information on this, please chime in. I'd love to hear from you. But even just from stuff I read years ago, I was looking at the same thing, and I had one guy that was breeding something, I believe it, it might have been Hapalobus species, Columbia Large, had more females than males. Somebody else was breeding another species. They thought they had more males than females. So I, I think it honestly depends on the species what the actual percentage is going to be. So great question, David. I'm sorry I couldn't come up with a more definitive answer, but I'm pretty confident in the fact it's not 50-50 and wouldn't be surprised that if it's, you know, skewed one way or another between males and females, depending on the species and where they come from. So it looks like we got some other amazing ones here. Uh, Andy Anderson's How to Select the uh, Proper Enclosure Size, Zach Hess for Myctopus, Pamphibedius, and Zenithis. I always mess that name up. What is your favorite genus out of these? (laughs) Oh, that's, that's an easy one. Um, Zenithus and Pamphibedius are expensive but highly regarded. Formictopus are quite a bit cheaper, and the praises have been sung by you and quite a few others on arachnoboards recently. Definitely looking to add one or maybe two of these genuses to my collection soon. Um, that is another great one. So, Zach, I'm going to I'm gonna take a rain check on this one only because I'd like to get into it. It's funny because I have a chance to get a Zenithus species right now. I've never bought one because they... People that love the species or genus are going to kill me, but they just look like extra expensive Pamphibedius to me. But obviously, people love these guys. They are very sought after. Pamphibedius are amazing, and I'm seeing a bunch of different species into the hobby now. And for Myctopus, this is going to be a tough one for me because anybody that's followed my channel or website or anything I do knows I absolutely love the Formictopus genus. I have, I think, six different species of them, a couple different colorations, whatever. Love them. So I can definitely get into that. I have um, That's going to be one I have to collect my thoughts a little bit about and come up with my take on it. But it's going to be tough for me to do it because I do not have Zenithus. So people that want to chime in with that, I will be happy to read their comments when we talk about that 
genus because I don't have the – I like to talk about stuff I have experience with and I can't really comment. I can't say Formictopus is better than this species or this genus because I haven't kept it before. So people feel free to chime in on those. Uh, Zach, I would just say early – you know, my early thoughts on it, definitely buy Formictopus. <laughs> um, what else have we got here? Uh, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Thanks, Brad Collins. That's fantastic. I have no idea, but I did find out recently that apparently uh, some college students found out how many licks it took to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop. There's college money well spent, so if you're sending your kids to college, there you go. That's uh, They're living the dream right there. Um, Chris Purchase, the pros and cons of different enclosures. Example, acrylic versus glass versus plastic tubs. That is fantastic. Um, That, I think, could be, again, a whole podcast unto itself, and I will definitely look to doing that one the next two I do. Um, That's a great idea because there are serious pros and cons for all three and if you know you know people that use glass love glass people that use acrylic love acrylic but i do know there are some good points and bad points as far as weight the ability to, you know to sustain or to take abuse and things of that nature for example i'm thinking acrylic scratches very very easily glass not as much plastic tubs if you have a big collection there's so much so chris that's a definite one look forward to that one in the future i will cover that one that could be a, a whole podcast topic unto itself and number two, if and how sling care is different from sling the sling, I can almost answer that one right now. Um, not much. There's certain slings that, you know, need it a little different than others, but I found that sling care is pretty gen- uh, generally across the board similar from species to species. I can actually talk about some of the ones that kind of don't fit that category and that would be a good one to talk about later on because again i'm going to take some notes on so guys you hit me with some great questions here so i know this is kind of a weird way to end a podcast but again at least you guys know what you have to look forward to because i am going to cover the pros and cons of different enclosures how to select proper enclosure size i definitely want to cover actually plan on covering that a while ago and it's a tough one because i don't think talk about gray areas this is probably the grayest area there is because people will still argue over what size enclosure you need there's these rules it has to be five times the size of the leg span of the tarantula things of that nature so we'll go into that um a lot of great great questions here the formictibus pamphibedius zenith Zenithis, I can't say that question, is a great one, Zach, so we'll try to cover that. So look forward to those three in the future, and we'll see what else pops up here, but I will cover them all and at least allude to them all. So thank you so much for those of you that chimed in very, very quickly on this one. I just posted this up a little while ago, so I do appreciate it. That'll about end it for this one. Again, I do hope everybody had a happy holiday. a great holiday. Hope everybody has a fantastic new year. You know, here bringing on 2000. I can't believe we're in 2019 already. We were watching a movie the other day that was 2002, and I'm like, oh, it's pretty current. And then I realized, no, it was 16 years old. That blows my mind a bit. Time's just going by very, very quickly. But hopefully everybody has a happy and safe New Year's. Be responsible if you're out drinking, as always, and have a good one. And, of course, I end them all the same way. If you want to check out my website, feel free to go to thomasbigspiders.com. If you want to check out my YouTube videos, it's Tom Moran, I believe, on YouTube, or Tom's Big Spiders. My The old name that's up there is Bizarre because it was my original email address, which was supposed to be a joke. And little did I know it was going to come back to bite me in the butt when I did a YouTube channel. It got somewhat popular, and now that's what people look for when they have to look me up. Um, that'll do it for this one. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys all next time.